Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Story ideas come to me from many different directions, and this one came in the form of a book sent to me by an old friend up in Vestal, New York, outside of Binghamton. My friend Tom knows that my distant relatives hail from the area around Spencer, New York. He and his kids spent part of a day with me a few years ago, hunting down information and a few gravestones around the area known as Hagedorn Hill. He sent the book to me along with a letter that read in part, It's strange to read a book where you know most everyone in the book, as well as the locations. We know the senior investigator for the New York State Police in this story, and I went to school with the author. Public opinion head Cal Harris, a car dealer, tried and convicted before he was arrested. I admit that since Cal Harris and his wife were headed for a divorce, I was one of the people who thought he was guilty. But I also know this author, and he's one of the most honest, true blue people you'll ever meet, a solid citizen. After six years as a Marine, he joined the New York State Police and worked his way up to investigator. He later left the NYSP, became a private investigator, and it was he who was hired to represent Cal Harris. I thought of you, John, because the Hagedorn name is still visible up here. And as you know, there's a Hagedorn Hill Road, which features heavily in this story. So I thought you might be interested. And that ended Tom's letter. I've got to say, this book, Reign of Injustice, is one of the most engrossing books I've ever read. It's in large part a crime story. In equally large part, it's a well-detailed, well-researched story of a huge injustice done to a man and his family, a man who was charged with the murder of his wife. It was an ongoing story that rocked upstate New York in the days and years following September 12, 2001, just after 9-11. Michelle Harris, the wife of successful car dealer Cal Harris, went missing on that day, September 12, 2001. Four years after she went missing, her husband Cal Harris was arrested and charged with murder. There was no body and no murder weapon, but he was tried and convicted. New evidence surfaced and his conviction was overturned and a new trial was granted. Once again, he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. That conviction was then overturned. He went on trial a third time, and that ended in a mistrial. By the time the fourth trial came to be, 
Michelle Harris had been missing nearly 15 years. The defense investigator, the author of Reign of Injustice, David M. Beers, worked on the Cal Harris case from start to finish. His story walks you through details and events of the case which have never been revealed until the book. His detailed and true story provides an inside view of the scandalous facts you won't find elsewhere, especially in the local papers, which all appear biased against Cal Harris, thanks to efforts on the part of the prosecutors to withhold evidence, to ignore the facts of the case that clashed with their own theory, and provide the press with information harmful to Harris's case. As with all of our stories, you're invited to look at both sides of this story and make up your own mind. This book should be required reading for all students of justice and law. David, it's great to have you with us today. You know, thanks for having me. Uh, I've done a few of these, and uh, I'm always anxious to accept a new interview and, and, and tell the story over and over because uh, I think the word needs to get out. It was a story that needed to be told. I, I never dreamed I'd be a published author, but, but it was this story that, that inspired me to, uh, to write the book. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us some of your background. I graduated high school, and uh, not long after that, I, I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Had a very successful career there for six years. I rose to the rank of uh, staff sergeant before I was honorably discharged. And then I became a sworn member of the state police. And uh, I worked as a uniform trooper for about nine years. And then I got, uh, I was an instructor and, uh, and then I got promoted to uh, investigator. And I worked in several different capacities, uh, narcotics, uh, major crimes, violent felony warrants. And then uh, probably the most recent uh, was in the uh, forensic identification unit doing crime scene, crime scene work and that type of thing. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Why were you chosen to defend Harris? Uh, I'd been working as a defense investigator in the private sector uh, after I left the state police in 94. And the Harris case happened in September 2001. But prior to that, I had already been working, doing defense work, uh, a lot of criminal defense work for a number of different attorneys mostly in, in Broome County, New York, which is where I live. After Cal was, after this happened, uh, uh, Cal kind of knew he was a suspect and, and they were looking at him pretty aggressively. And uh, so he and his dad uh, reached out to uh, probably the best criminal defense attorney in, in Broome County, whose name was Joe Colley. And I had already done some work for, for Joe Colley on some other cases. So as soon as he got the call, he called me. And that was uh, about a week after Michelle disappeared. And uh, Cal's objective at that point was, uh, was kind of twofold. Uh, one, to help find his wife, Michelle, and the other one was to uh, uh, prepare a defense should he be charged. Tell us a little bit about Cal Harris. What's his story and what was his reputation? How did people uh, receive him? Uh, they either loved him or hated him. <laughs> uh, Cal, Cal had a kind of a volatile reputation uh, as being uh, very aggressive, very outspoken, somewhat arrogant, controlling, and he was probably all of those things at one time or another. Uh, but he's very intelligent, very organized. Uh, he ran a, 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 a new car dealership, two of them as, as a matter of fact, uh, that were... It's been started by his dad. 
and uh, he ran a tight ship. And uh, as long as you did your job, uh, you got along with Cal real well. But he didn't like slugs, <laughs> and uh, and if it, it, because that would cause a clash with Cal, and, and things would not go well. And and he had he had some issues with Michelle's family. Uh, they didn't really like him, and I, I don't know what all of the reasons were. But uh, you know, Michelle was, uh, you know, she's very pretty, very uh, head turning, attractive woman. Um, but she grew up in a kind of a lower middle class environment where where Cal was kind of an upper middle class. So when uh, when she married into the Harris family, you know, she was kind of quickly elevated into the upper middle class. And uh, so she was experiencing some of the finer things in life and was enjoying it. Uh, but I don't know how well that went over with her family. But uh, that's that's kind of Cal's reputation in a nutshell. There, there he had a he had a great circle of friends at the time, uh, and but when this happened, there were some who kind of abandoned him right away, and others supported him right away, and then there were some that were kind of on the fence. What was the relationship a little deeper between Cal and Michelle prior to her disappearance, and then what happened the day she disappeared? Okay, yeah. So backing up. Uh, uh, trouble had been brewing in their marriage for quite some time. I mean, they had four small children, all under the age of seven uh, at the time. You know, Michelle found out that Cal was having an affair, and unbeknownst to Cal, she, she was too. Probably about nine months before this happened, she, Michelle filed for a divorce, and Cal did not take it well. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of uh, very heated arguments, which became very nasty at times according to uh, all the witnesses that I spoke to and the police spoke to. But, in the er and that was, but that was in the early stages of the divorce. Uh, as things progressed, things kind of eased up a little bit when he finally accepted the fact that this was going to happen, and so did she, and, and they were just going to move on with their separate lives. And, uh, but they still resided in the same marital home for the benefit of the children primarily. That was that was one of the few things that they didn't argue about uh, because they both loved their kids. They, and everybody I talked to, everybody the police talked to said that, you know, Cal was a great father. Michelle was a terrific mother. So there was, there was never any issue there, but the, the conflict was between Cal and Michelle. So then we fast forward to uh, September 11th, the day of 9-11. Michelle back in, April or May of 2011 had decided to go to work. She didn't need to, but Cal had plenty of money and she had plenty of spending money, but she was telling everybody that Cal had cut her off financially, which turned out to be not true. Uh, and, and, the, and the real reason she decided to take a job was to uh, get out of the house and be away from Cal because she didn't like fighting with him. So she took a job as a waitress at a bar restaurant down in Waverly, New York, which is about a 20-minute, maybe 30-minute drive from their house. Is that lefties? Lefties, correct. And uh, lefties did not have a real good reputation. I mean, they had good food and everything, but they had kind of a, a shady uh, clientele that worked there and, and patronized the place. Not everybody, but there was problems there. And, and Cal, Cal knew that there was some shady characters there, and he didn't like the fact that she was working there, but he let her do her thing. 
So on September 11th, she went to work. Uh, well, Cal went to work that morning. Uh, and then she went to work later that afternoon uh, to work like a afternoon and early evening shift at Lefty's. And she got off work at nine o'clock. She shared a drink with a coworker till about 9.15. And then she left there and, and went to, she had a boyfriend at the time that she'd been in a relationship with, uh, a covert a relationship with for about six months. Uh, he was from Philadelphia. And he'd actually become so smitten with Michelle that he, he moved from Philly right up to New York and to be with her. Michelle helped him find a place to live. And uh, so when she left lefties that night, she went to her boyfriend's house. So she gets there probably around 9.30, 9.40 p.m. And according to him, his name was Brian, uh, she stayed there till about 11.15 or so. And then he kissed her goodnight and he assumed she was on her way home up in Spencer, but she didn't go home. The police believe she did, and that was part of their theory. But um, if we fast forward to the next morning, about 7 a.m., a little before, Cal gets up. Now, keep in mind, they'd been sleeping in separate areas. Cal was sleeping in the master bedroom. She'd been sleeping on the couch downstairs. So he gets up that morning and comes down the stairs and uh, expecting to find Michelle there getting the kids ready for school, but she's not there and her car's not there. Uh, so he's, he's trying to get ready for work and get the kids ready for school, so he, he needs some help. So he, uh, he called an adult babysitter who lived about four miles away and she agreed to come over. So she came over right away, but when she gets to the end of the driveway, she sees Michelle's van parked at the end of the driveway. And what now, kind of driveway, driveway was it? It was, uh, see, Hagedorn Hill Road at the time was just a dirt road with drainage ditches on both sides. And uh, the Harris driveway, uh, where it intersected with Hagedorn Hill Road, it was like a quarter mile long. So you couldn't see the house from the road or, or vice versa. And paved too, right? Yeah, and the driveway was paved. Yeah, it was very nice uh, paved driveway. You know, and when you get down to the end of it, it, it forks to the left to go to Cal's house, and then it forks to the right to go to uh, his father's cottage, which is also on the same lake. But anyway, so the, the babysitter sees Michelle's van there, and of course, she, so she stops and gets out, and uh, she looks in there. The, the keys are in the ignition, um, but Michelle's nowhere to be seen. She looks in the back thinking that maybe she was sleeping one off, uh, but doesn't see her and, and no sign of her. So she gets back in her car and drives into the house and uh, walks in the garage. The, the garage door was open and, uh, and she walks into the house and she's Cal and says, and uh, uh, she says to Cal, you know, is, is Michelle here? He said, no, that's why I called you. She, she didn't come home. So she said, well, her car's out the end of the driveway. So Cal says, well, we better go get it. You know, so so they're kind of speculating as to what may have happened. So Cal drives her out to the end of the driveway and has her drive Michelle's van into the house. And then uh, she stays there with the two, uh, the, the youngest child, and Cal takes the three oldest ones to school, and then he goes on to work. Did he ever regret bringing the van in? Uh, because it was basically a crime. I mean, he didn't know it, but it could have been a crime scene. No, right? no, 
nobody nobody was thinking anything criminal had happened at that point. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed like a logical thing to do. And of course, him and the babysitter are going through it, uh, uh, looking for the kids' backpacks for school and that type of thing, getting them ready. And, and he, he makes the comment that the van was a mess because yeah, you know Michelle was practically living out of it. So it really was a mess and it was overdue for service. So uh, he wanted to get it down to the dealership and, and take care of that. But he was going to do that later. <clears throat> but for now, he, he had her drive it into the into the house. So he goes on into work. He drops the kids off of school. He goes to work. The babysitter's there with the youngest. And then she gets a call from one of Michelle's best friends, uh, Nikki, uh, looking for Michelle. So the babysitter explains everything to her. And, and, and of course, Nikki's suspects something wrong right away because she knew that you know, Michelle was going through a divorce and she was uh, scheduled to have a, a meeting with her attorney regarding the divorce. So she, she calls the attorney, Michelle's divorce attorney, and explains it to him. So then he, he uh, initiates a conference call with the state police, and uh, they explain the whole situation. In less than an hour after she's reported missing, based on the information provided by Nikki and the babysitter, the state police decide to launch a, a missing person investigation right away. Uh, and <clears throat> so within an hour and change from when she's reported missing, uh, excuse me, two investigators are knocking on the door at Cal's business to interview him about Michelle being missing. So that kind of uh, sets the stage for uh, uh, how she went missing and, and when. Did the, from the, from the very top, did the, did the lead investigator or any of the NYSP investigators have a bias against um, Harris? Yes, but we, we didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the lead investigator, her name was Susan Mulvey. Um, she was the senior investigator in charge of that particular station there in Owego, uh, where they were stationed. And uh, so she was in charge of the of the investigation. And, uh, you know, Cal, Cal the Cal Harris name was was well known within the Owego community just because of his uh, dealings with the dealership and that type of thing. So he already had a a reputation, if you will, uh, in that community. So, so I, there's no doubt that every one of them had some information about, about Cal Harris. So it didn't take them long to realize that, you know, there's a divorce pending and, and the wife is missing. So, you know, they're, they're going to be looking at Cal as a suspect. Um, they went we to, did, they went to his dealership first to talk to him. Did, what else did they do first? Not to get ahead of the story, but I'm just wondering yeah. how, how they're acting and what they figured was important here. Yeah, well, yeah, they went and talked to Cal first. And then so he explained everything I just explained to you. And uh, and then uh, he escorted two of the investigators out to his house, uh, took him right out there. They followed him out. He drove he drove and they followed him out there. When they got to the end of the driveway, he pointed out where her van had been found. And then he takes them on into the house. And uh, they go through the van, and then they they uh, they decide to tow her van down to their barracks to examine it further, and then uh, he gives them a consent, uh, a written consent to search his house and his property and his vehicle 
and Michelle's vehicle, which was a dealership vehicle. And then he leaves. He says, I'm, I'm go, I'll be back at work. If you need anything further, let me know. So he leaves the investigators there with, with carte blanche to do whatever they need to do. Um, so they spent the day, uh, most of the day, most of the business day, working day, uh, looking around the property and, and, and finding out whatever they could find uh, and, and they'll know Michelle. And then later that evening, they're still working there and the Cal calls them and finds out they're still there. So he, he picks up his kids and takes them to dinner. And then finally he, he goes home, uh, you know, seven o'clock or so uh, with the kids and then the police are gone. But they, but they called them later and they had a few follow-up questions in which he cooperated and, and answered, answered their questions. And Cal had a couple of friends that went with him to, uh, to help, talk to the kids about their mom being missing. So that, that was, that was pretty much it for that day. <laughs> but then the, the next day, uh, you know, the police are, are back. Uh, they, they want to continue their, their search for Michelle. And, uh, and then they bring in the forensic unit. They, they find a couple of specks of blood in the, in the garage and in the entryway from the garage into the, into the, into the house from the garage. They're very tiny, very tiny. They, they missed them the first time they looked through there. I mean, that's how small they were. So they, uh, they noted that. So, so, they, so they stopped their, their search and, and applied for a search warrant, which is the right thing to do. Then once the search warrant was uh, granted, they, they went back and they, and they started looking uh, a little more aggressively. And, and they called in some experts from the Albany Crime Lab uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, enhance some of the areas where they found the blood to see if there was any evidence of cleanup or, or perhaps evidence of larger quantities. Be because the most they found was just these few specks of like sub-millimeter sized stains. And, uh, and they were dry. Uh, so there was no, no way to really tell how long they'd been there. But they kind of jumped to the conclusion that there'd been a, some type of an assault or, or crime there. And so they, they collected samples, took a lot of photographs, and they, uh, the field tests showed that it was human blood. And then they finally went to the lab, and the lab confirmed that it was, it was human blood and it was Michelle's. So with that, you know, they, they formulated this theory that she'd been killed there in the house in that entryway and then carried out into the garage and then at some point, he, uh, Cal, uh, disposed of her body. So that's, that was their theory. Because they, they, they theorized that after she left her boyfriend's house, she went home. And uh, in the midnight time frame, uh, she, she walks in the house. And this is their theory. And that Cal was waiting for her with some type of uh, uh, murder weapon. And when, once she entered that entryway, he uh, bludgeoned her. And she went down like a ton of bricks and then uh, started bleeding. And then uh, he carries her, drags her out into the garage and then uh, puts her in a bag or what have you and then takes her out in some remote area on the property and disposes of her body. That was, that was their theory. Okay, that's their theory. Um, yeah. It, assuming there was a sane hit in the room, 
What would, what would he have uh, posed as being negatives to that theory, possible reasons why that theory couldn't hold up? Well, there were several, actually. Um, uh, first of all, the, the, the one thing that kind of jumped out at me was, uh, you know, they were saying that this was all premeditated. And, uh, you know, Cal's, Cal's four children were all sleeping upstairs when, when this happened, uh, which, which that, that, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. The other thing was uh, it was pitch dark out when, when, they, when they claimed that this happened. And uh, Cal's property, was, which was like 250 acres plus, uh, was very, very remote, most of which was heavily wooded. So it, it just seemed unlikely that he would have been able to uh, dispose of her body, you know, someplace in the dark. You know, he had ATVs, there's, there's no doubt, but, you know, driving out there in the middle of the night and, and, and finding some place that was so remote and so hidden that, that she could never be found, that, that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And the other thing that really didn't make a lot of sense was uh, uh, the lack of blood. Uh, there was so little there. And, and even though the police had used some uh, rather extensive uh, development techniques, they, they never found anything more than those sub-millimeter stains. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked crime scenes before, and, you know, it just didn't make much sense that there, there wouldn't be some evidence of, uh, of pooling or blood spatter or cast off something, something more, and, and it just wasn't there. And, and on top of that, there was actually areas where there should have been blood, according to their theory, where there wasn't. Because between the two areas, between the garage floor and the entryway, there was like a six-foot section of, of carpet on the garage floor that where the dog slept. And uh, there was no blood there. I mean, they, they examined it. They sent those that rug to the lab. There was no blood uh, on the surface of that rug. So my question was, how does, how does he get her from where she's profusely bleeding in this entryway out into the garage without leaving any blood in that? space in between the no man's zone there or you know and, uh, and where was the dog at that on that night uh the dog the dog was in and out uh he would have tracked any blood but yeah they, uh, assumedly yeah. before he before harris cleaned it up that dog would have been in it and tracked it all over the house yeah, the dog the dog was there uh in and out you know the dog slept right there on that rug next to the garage wall I mean, in fact, you can see some of the staining on the wall because the dog had slept there every every day. And the car is sitting out there at the very end of the driveway on Hagedorn Hill Road with the keys in it. Yeah. I mean, how did the husband plan that? Yeah, that's just it. You know, I, uh, they, they had some pretty bizarre theories uh, <laughs> that, that pointed to, to Cal, you know, but they, they really didn't. When you when you break it down and look at it, they just didn't make a lot of sense. So Susan Mulvey is going going with the theory. And when okay. when did they first interview the people that uh, that Michelle was working with and her acquaintances? When did they first start uh, doing that investigation? Yeah, actually, they started that quite early. Okay, uh, they they went to lefties and they identified her coworkers. In fact, she she had a list uh, in her belongings of all the employees' names and their phone numbers, so it was pretty easy for them to uh, reach out to these people and talk to them, and. Uh, they learned a lot of things from from their from the employees. Uh, you know, she talked to them about her relationship with Cal, and uh, but you know, she liked to party. That was one of the other things that uh, that concerned me was that uh, you know Michelle not only went to work 
you know, and left Cal alone taking care of the kids at night. But when she got out of work, she'd often go out partying into the early morning hours at various uh, watering holes down in the valley there. Uh, and she'd, she'd go along with some of her co-workers. And they all confirmed that. And that, that Nikki I mentioned earlier was, was one of the ones that was always with her, knowing, knowing that her, vo- her divorce is still pending. And, and they, they just encouraged her to, to do these things, you know. And uh, they even encouraged her to be in a relationship with her boyfriend and helped him buy a ho- or get an apartment. So they were, uh, they were not doing her any favors. And, so, and on top of that, like I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the reputation of, of lefties and its clientele uh, was not good. Uh, so Michelle was uh, placed herself in, in a very at-risk lifestyle doing that. And I'm sure she was kind of naive to that. And she probably just assumed it was all in fun. But there was a lot of, uh, you know, sexual harassment going on uh, at lefties in, involving her. There was there was a lot of single men who came there and, you know, once they saw Michelle, you know, they wanted to uh, be assigned to her tables. You know, to, right. So she'd get on them and and they they tell sexually related jokes and she would take it all in fun and and, and respond accordingly. But uh Unbeknownst to her, I think that was you know putting her in jeopardy. What was Cal Drazen's um, job there? What was his involvement in this? I mean, Stan Drazen. Stan Drazen, yeah. Is yeah, that- he, Stan was was Cal's uh, business attorney. So so he was familiar with uh, with the divorce uh, issue. So so Cal had been in regular contact with him while the divorce was pending and. And you know, one of the one of the things that the the police had tried to argue was that uh, one of the motives here was because Cal was uh, at risk of losing a lot of money. But in reality, uh, you know, Cal had learned from his attorney, Mr. Drazen, that uh, that wasn't that wasn't the case because he owned he owned the dealership before they got married. So so the dealership wasn't uh, something that he was in uh, likely to lose as a result of the divorce. And uh, they, they'd already been discussing uh, a settlement agreement. And it was Cal's understanding and Mr. Drazen's understanding that uh, they would accept that agreement. But the police continued to argue that uh, that was uh, part, of, part of his motive. What was Stan's opinion on Harris? Did he think Harris was guilty? No, absolutely not. In fact, there was, there was, a, there was a moment early on Actually, actually, before before uh, uh, ju- our, uh, attorney Colley got involved, where Susan Mulvey came came right up to Drazen's office uh, within a within within two days, and she she looks him right in the eye and says, "You know, I know Cal did this, and I'm going to prove it." <laughs> you know, so she was she was hell bent on believing that Cal had done this, and and nothing was going to get in her way. How long was it? How long a period was it from the time you took the case until the time that they charged him? Four years. So you had no no access to discovery during those four years. All yeah, the, that's all the interviews they did, all the investigations they did. You couldn't get a hold of notes, videotapes, anything. No, we we had to rely pretty much on what Cal could provide. You know, he was able to provide phone records from the business and the home and financial records, that type of thing. But no, we were not privy to any discovery because he hadn't been charged. 
So, so you, so that in, in one way it gave you, you know, the, in one way it gave you the willpower to go places where they didn't, and you weren't just following up on stuff that they did. But on the other hand, you could have absolutely used a lot of that. Yeah, you know, because I, because I, I ran into a roadblock with uh, when I tried to interview uh, some of Michelle's coworkers at Lefties. They'd been told not to talk to me, you know, and so, uh, but when I went and talked to uh, the Cal's co-workers, you know, they, they kind of welcomed me with open arms and, and answered all my questions. And uh, so I found that to be pretty helpful. But, but yeah, you're right. Uh, without the discovery, you're, you're kind of working blind with a lot of things. Now, they found blood on day two. Why did it take four years to charge him? Obviously, they didn't have a, You're going to tell me they didn't have enough. And I understand that. But it, it turns out that that's all they did have. That's all they had, because, you know, because when they when they finally did uh, indict him, uh, you know, our first question was, you know, what what more have they found? You know, what what what, what something new did they find? And as it turns out, there was nothing more. Uh, so what what prompted them to arrest him when they did is uh, I, I think, as I wrote in the book, because one of the one of the lead investigators there, not 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 Mulvey, but his her supervisor, uh, uh, Mark Lester was his name. Uh, he made the comment at one point that you know there came a point in time where we we needed to either win, lose, or draw. We we're going to go forward with this, and that's what they did. Uh, so, but you know, on on that same issue of the four years, Cal. So Cal was indicted four years after this happened. And it, it was a result of that indictment that uh, that led him to have a discussion with me because he knew I had worked for the state police and he knew that uh, I knew some of the investigators working his case, but he was particularly interested in, in Sue Mulvey and what I could tell him about her. And that's when we learned of the conflict. And what was the conflict? Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I had no clue about this, and, and neither did he. But once we started sharing information, it all came out. As it turned out, uh, I was explaining to him that, that Sue Mulvey had come on the job, had come on the state police about a year after I did. But her, her maiden name uh, was Andrews, and, and her father used to be the sheriff of Broome County. <laughs> and Cal went ballistic. <laughs> I mean, I can still see the, the red in his eyes when I told him that. He's, you know, he, I can't remember his exact words. I, I, I put it in the book. Is it, you mean, you mean uh, Sue Andrews is, is uh, John Andrews's daughter? <laughs> I said, yeah. Why? He says, because that that son of a bitch worked for me, and I had to fire him. So that was kind of an eye opener for for both of us. Uh, within, within the law, didn't she have to um, make that known? Before she accepted this investigation, or not? Well, she should have, but I don't. I don't think e even her own colleagues knew that. They they knew that her dad used to be the sheriff, but they didn't know that he'd worked for Cal, and and left under very bad terms, very bad terms. Uh, so she and, just kept that under her hat. Yeah, she just kept it under her hat. But unfortunately, you know, you know, of course, Cal was really upset. He called. Joe Colley right away and said, you know, what are we going to do about this? But, you know, the damage had been done. Uh, 
he'd, he'd already been indicted. And uh, so trying to make an issue about the conflict at that point was kind of a, a moot point. Uh, so, the, you know, like I said, the damage was done. So we just had to move on. But we started to, to scrutinize her work a little more thoroughly after that. We'll return with author David M. Beers and Reign of Injustice right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the Cal Harris story, Reign of Injustice. And I'd like to get to that question in just a little while about uh, about her work and about um, what was suppressed and what wasn't. So put that, keep that as a note for a minute. I wanted to yeah. ask you, as the seams to their theory started to come unwound, how important was the testimony of Housekeeper Thayer? Oh, it was, it was very important, uh, even though she lied. Y- yeah, I mean, the... the, the they were using her. Barb Thayer continued to work for Cal for about another year after this happened as, as their babysitter. But, but unbeknownst to Cal, you know, the, the, the police continued to work with her and, and she was keeping a daily log of her, uh, of things that were happening with Cal. And she'd report back to the police. So we, we didn't know any of this until we started to get our discovery material, you know, four years later. Uh, and, and in that same material, we learned that uh, she was telling people things that weren't true. Like, for example, uh, in the morning Michelle was reported missing, uh, she claimed to have called Michelle's cell phone that morning uh, you know, to see where she was. But as it turned out, it wasn't her that made that call. It was Cal. Cal was the one who tried to call her. But they, they tried to make a big argument of that. But, but the timing, the timing of the call actually proved that it was Cal who made the call and, and Thayer, there's no way she could have done it at the time that she claimed it happened. And, and so that was one issue, a major issue. And the other one was uh, she was also telling people that after September 12th, it was like Michelle never existed. She was claiming that Cal was getting rid of anything and everything pertaining to Michelle, pictures and clothing and, and everything. And and, and it, it, as if she was, she never existed, you know, and, and when we found that out, you know, Cal says, ah, that's ridiculous. He says, I'll take you right out there. He says, I'll show you. And, and, and so I did, I went out there with him and he showed me uh, all of the things that were still there. Uh, Michelle's designer clothes still hanging in the master bedroom closet, uh, photo albums and uh, film, uh, all of which still contain Michelle's 
pictures and uh, their wedding album. So, so she was lying uh, to people by, by saying that. And, uh, and, and I understand why she did it. She was very close to Michelle. Michelle confided in her. And she felt very strongly that Cal had done this. But, you know, that didn't give her permission to lie about things. But she wanted to help the cause. And that's what she did. What were the biggest reveals for you before the first trial where you really felt like the investigation was being mishandled by the state police? that you weren't getting all the information that you should be getting, that actually some of it was being purposely hidden from you, and maybe some mistakes in the investigation. What were those big pieces that started to come together for you? Well, there were they, they, they so many different things. Uh, but, you know, one of them was uh, uh, they, they kind of shied away from Michelle's boyfriend. The, the last person she, that, who saw her alive? Yeah, because he, he was the last person to see her alive. And it was only his word that... that she left when he said she did, and so he really didn't have an alibi. Yeah, he uh, was a he was a big suspect in your mind, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because because here's the thing um, that and initially, and this was before the first trial, we we were seriously looking at this Brian Early was his name as a real potential suspect because of that, and and what really prompted it uh, from a defense perspective was that uh, a lot of Michelle's jewelry was missing. She wore a lot of jewelry, and at the time, she she was in possession of a lot of her uh, extra jewelry that she was carrying around in a jeweler's bag, trying to sell it hmm. to raise money for a down payment on a house. And, uh, of course, the boyfriend knew that, and so did co-workers at Lefty's. Her boyfriend loaned her $5,000, right? And he loaned her $5,000. So our, our theory was, and because we had learned from uh, another source that— uh, Michelle had told one of her friends, uh, a, a, a woman she confided in like a mother on a regular basis, had told her that her relationship with Brian had run its course. So our, our theory was initially that uh, she went to his house that night to call an end to it. And he didn't take it well. Now, now he's out $5,000 and he knows she doesn't have the money, so... He wants the jewelry in exchange, so that that was kind of our our position there, and and that and that that was never addressed by the by the police at all. You know, they they limit, they kind of crawled into bed with this guy. Oh, and the the other thing there that really bothered me about that was uh, here here he got the last guy to see her alive, it wasn't Cal, it was Brian, and they don't search his house. Yeah, they don't search his car, they don't search him, and then on top of that. Him and his family have hunting property just over the Pennsylvania border that he that he admitted having taken her there and they don't even search that. Hmm. They they just go there and, and, and you know, do one of these, you know, and, and no pictures, uh, nothing, no scuba divers in the pond, nothing. How can you not do that? I mean, uh, so, so, you know, you know where their focus was and, and, and they weren't going to let anything get in their way. Cal had... Uh... A lot of detractors in this. His own brother and sister-in-law oh, yeah. weren't speaking well of him. When they were interviewed, what did they say? <laughs> uh, yeah, Cal had a, a kind of a strange relationship with his, with his family, except his, his dad. He had a good relationship with his dad. But his brothers, you know, they'd had fallings out over business dealings. And so they didn't have much good to say about Cal. 
Uh, they, they've gotten in physical fights at times, uh, had each other arrested, uh, things like that. So, so yeah, I, I did talk to uh, Cal's brother, Kevin, and his wife, and, uh, and then another uh, sister. Yeah, and, and none of them had much good to say about him, other than Cal was a good dad. They, they really didn't dispute that at all. And, and I think they were convinced that Cal did this. And, uh, you know, like Kevin, for example, said, you know, follow the money and, and you'll know it's him, you know. But, you know, as it turned out that there was nothing to that. At what point did you run into the witness that gave you the information about the stalker, about the vehicle that had been um, following Michelle for the last couple of weeks before she disappeared? It was a dark vehicle. Was it dark green? Yeah. No, no, nobody, nobody ever said it was green. Um, that's what the police wanted it to believe. Okay. Yeah, there was, uh, <clears throat> actually it was uh, uh, the boyfriend's landlord uh, who, who lived in the apartment above him, uh, the Millers. They owned the building and they, 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 they lived in the apartment above Brian Early. So they were interviewed. And, and uh, Mrs. Miller describes having seen a dark pickup truck circling around the uh, apartment complex. I mean, this is a small complex. It's, it's, it's off the main road. There, nobody drives there except local traffic. But she sees this strange pickup she'd never seen before late at night, uh, just kind of lurking around. And uh, so that kind of jumped out at me. And, and I became very suspicious of that. And, and it became even even more significant later on when when we developed new evidence after the first trial with with, uh, with a couple new witnesses. And, and uh, that that same truck issue started making me believe that uh, uh, it was someone other than Cal that was uh, keeping an eye on uh, on Michelle. There's just so many different issues in this case. I probably should back up a little bit uh, and, and, and address the uh, the concerns and, and the controversy that we had regarding the blood. Like I've already mentioned, the size of the blood was very, very minimal. It was spread out in a, an area where there was uh, 10 or 11 separate little areas, but they're all very, very tiny, both in the garage and in the uh, entryway. And, and the police had uh, done an extensive job trying to develop it further and, and never found anything further with their, with their variable light sources and their uh, uh, blood reagents that they use. Uh, they never found anything. So, th so the controversy was kind of two-part. Uh, the one was the, uh, the, the volume of blood even even uh, the experts from both sides agreed that it was no more than 10 drops, which is pretty small, which which obviously uh, would suggest that, you know, nobody would have died from uh, uh, an injury that only resulted in 10 drops of blood. Some of the early samples they took, they didn't bother to photograph before they took their samples. And, and, and in so doing, they, they consumed the sample. You know that's that's not good, uh, and and they they had a real problem with their photographs. You know, ordinarily you try to secure evidence uh, as is, uh, the best you can. But here, you know, you've got a concrete floor, so that that's pretty difficult to do. So your your only method really is uh, is to photograph it. 
but they had all kinds of problems with their photos. Uh, uh, contrast, uh, flash problems, either too bright or not enough, uh, exposure issues. Uh, so it was very difficult to determine the actual color uh, of the floor and, and, of course, the blood. So when they, when they were consulting with their expert, all he had to work with was, the, was these, these photographs. And they, and they were, like I said, they're, they're all, you know, they, they, they varied so extreme uh, that it was difficult to uh, offer an opinion uh, without knowing what the true color was. They didn't use a color balance card. They should have had an expert take the photos, but they didn't. And, and they were really, really pretty lousy, considering that that's your only source of, 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 of revealing the evidence. Did all the drops they found match her or just one of them or some of them? The ones they tested uh, were her. Yeah. And there could have been anything from a bloody nose to... Yeah, know, I mean, the, the possibilities cut, are... The kitchen cut. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, Michelle, uh, there, and there was, Michelle uh, worked on these craft things. So she used to use these exacto knives, you know, and yeah. uh, and the other thing uh, that which is really interesting that they kind of steered away from was that in Michelle's divorce affidavit, she claimed that she'd been in an argument with Cal out in the driveway, and uh, during that argument he pushed her. She said, and she fell down and she cut her hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when they're and, and the interesting about that is when they're when the police are consulting with their blood expert, Dr. Lee, they don't tell him that. Hmm. But he tell, but he tells them uh, and, and we've got it all on videotape. They videotaped their their meeting with Dr. Lee and because 48 hours was interested. So they came and filmed it. And this is this is before the first trial even. And Dr. Lee says to them that, you know, that the, the, the blood specs they're looking at could have been from a hand. You know, somebody just shaking their hand. Yeah, but 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 they never tell him that <laughs> that Michelle had, had cut her hand. So he had to tell them. <laughs> so and the other the other controversy regarding the blood, uh, a huge controversy was the age of the blood. Now they found they found this this is bizarre too, uh, John. They found the first blood specks on September fourteenth. Okay, two days into it. They didn't take the first photographs until the 16th. Mm. So now four days have already gone by. Yep. But now now they want their expert to say that it's fresh. It, it's within within a couple of days. And he, and he pretty much gives it to them. And, and he was later kind of admonished for doing that because there was no scientific basis for that. Right. So <laughs> the age of the bloods became, became a huge controversy. Uh, because there's really no way of aging blood once it's dried in a protected environment. Uh, I, I did experience experiments when I was in the bloodstain school where uh, we took samples of blood, let them dry, and, and took photographs on subsequent days for about two weeks. And, and if you look at day two versus day 14, you can't tell the difference visually. And, and and on top of that, in this case, they had the the bad photographs. So, and, and the, the, the big issue with the photographs with, with, uh, were the ones that had too much flash because the gray floor, the gray painted concrete floor was kind of washed out, almost white. But 
that same flash, what it did to the blood was actually brightened it and, and made it look much redder than it really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's very, very, very misleading. And that, that was our biggest concern uh, if that photo was shown to a jury, that it would be misleading, misrepresentative of what, of what it really was. Uh, but, but that's what they did. But it did look like there was some kind of solvent used on the garage floor? No. It did not? No. Because okay. you no. said it was kind of washed out. That was the, What looked washed out was what they put down to determine where the blood was, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, th- there was a couple things about the... They, they were trying to claim that there was evidence of cleanup. Yeah. It, it, that really, it, really, it really didn't matter whether there was cleanup or not, because even if there was a... Uh, if there was an innocent explanation for the blood, let's say Michelle cut herself and and uh, stopped the bleeding and then went and cleaned it up. So there there could be evidence of cleanup. But there, from what we could tell and what our experts could tell, there there really was no evidence of cleanup. Because uh, in, in some of the areas that you look at, it looks as if uh, the blood had been slightly diluted. But then in the one right next to it, it didn't look diluted. Yeah. So it, it really didn't make much sense that, uh, that that there'd been any type of formal cleanup, but but more likely maybe some water dripped on it over time, uh, from you know, water on the tires of the car or something. Who knows? But that became a real sticking point in the trial. Uh, it was the argument over the dilution on the blood. You were there for that first trial. I'm trying yeah. to imagine what it was like when the prosecutor was making his final argument to the jury. It was, I assume it was a jury trial. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's trying to explain how she parked her car at the very end of the driveway, left the keys in it, and he's... No, that's, that's not quite right. Uh, their theory was that uh, she, when she got home that night, she drove her car all the way into the garage and, and then parked it and went in and got beat up. Okay. And, and after Cal disposed of her body, he drove her car back out and parked it at the end of the driveway. That was their theory. And why did he do that? To try to distance himself from uh, committing the crime. So making it look like the crime happened out on the road. Yeah. Or or or, or he puts her car out there pretending not to know how it got there or when. Okay. So she yeah, drove that- the car into the into the garage. Is, is what yeah. they're they're trying to tell the jury. Yeah, and that he uh, somewhere between the car and the door attached to the kitchen, he he jumped her, and yeah. and 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 uh, bludgeoned her to death. Yeah, yeah, all in just a few seconds, and practically yeah, yeah. practically bloodless. The dog didn't bark. Nobody in the house woke up. She didn't scream. Just this all just went down, and then he was able to somehow dispose of the body. We can we have to assume a. a he knew where to take it, although they have, they searched every square inch of that property and all the lakes attached. Yeah, and that, they, and that nobody in the family saw him. He didn't wake anybody up, and he went to work the next day just as normal as 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 could be. Yeah, yeah. And the and the jury was supposed to swallow all that. Yeah, and, yeah, and they did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their theory was that he had this. Uh, he he'd found this place earlier, and that was part of his plan as a place to hide the body. Uh, but like you said, you know, the they searched that place like, you know, they left no stone unturned. And the uh, fact the uh, the forest rangers who coordinated those ground searches were convinced that uh, 
there was a 95% chance she wasn't on that property anywhere. Uh, and she wasn't. So yeah, that, that was, that was their theory. And the, and the other thing he said in his closing, uh, was that, you know, she'd been, uh, hit twice, you know, by some object, you know, and they, but there was no evidence of that at all, because if, if you hit somebody a second time, there's going to be some cast off yeah. or, or back spatter, they call it. Uh, and there was nothing like that, nothing like that. And the other thing, in that little entryway, which was less than like four feet square, it's pretty small. That's where they, that's, that was the, the kill zone, they, you know, uh, their ground zero. That's where they said the assault took place. And on the on the floor was the it was ceramic tile, and there was this little throw rug that just laid there, uh, that, that took up most of the space. There was no blood on the tile around it, no blood underneath it. But for whatever reason, they decided to take that rug into evidence. Uh, we don't know why initially, but later when they're consulting with their expert, they find these tiny specks of blood on the rug. And the, and the expert says to him, do you know which side of the rug it was found on? And they said, no. <laughs> but fortunately, they, they'd taken pictures before they removed the rug. And when you compare the pictures to the rug, it was, it was pretty obvious. And they later admitted that the specks of blood were on the bottom of the rug. So, and, it's, and, and, and like I said, it was just little specks that nothing... No pooling, no soaking in, nothing like that. And you know, if you if you bludgeon someone, and they start bleeding like that, uh, it's not going to be just a few specks, okay? And and the other bizarre thing was that you know they, they so they wanted you to believe that yeah, Cal did all this meticulous cleanup in the garage and hiding of the body, but when it came to the rug, he just flipped it over. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that just that didn't make any sense whatsoever. None whatsoever. During the whole course of this investigation, what did Susan Mulvey do to slow down your investigation or to conceal evidence or to use illegal tactics in order to kind of bring him out? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, she was always always kind of trying to harass him any way she could. She She called Child Protective Service on him, for one thing with with no with no uh, foundation for it whatsoever, uh, trying to get CPS to maybe take his kids away. That didn't work. And then uh, the other thing she would do, she'd call the helicopter to come down. I mean, we're talking sometimes months later, yeah, claiming that it, that they were going to search for Michelle. But all they did, they wanted to fly over Cal's house and let him know they were there, see him, you know, waving his fist at him, you know, which he did. And then uh, they did that a couple of different times. <laughs> and another time, this this was kind of bizarre, uh, but I did write about it in the book. When all this was happening, one of the things Cal was really trying very hard to do was kind of shield his kids from what was happening. So at one point, after this had been going on for how, how long it was, it wasn't too long, he decided to get his kids away from everything, and he, he took them down to Disney World. He, uh, he had another adult couple go with him to help with the kids. And he flew down there with his kids to D Disney World. And he was down there for a few days and then came back. And when he gets back to the airport in Syracuse, guess who's waiting for him? 
standing right there in plain sight. You know, they're not, they're not trying to surveil him. They, they want him to see them. Mulvey and, and another investigator standing there for, and, and for, for what purpose? Uh, to see who he's going to contact? <laughs> it just that, you know, that, that, was, that was nothing but, you know, muscle flexing, in, in my opinion. Yeah, didn't they pull an unauthorized search on him one time to see how he would react? Yeah, they uh, they they put together uh, they got a court order to put a GPS unit on his truck, and also and and they 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 got these teams of uh, tactical teams to to watch his place and and to and to and to see where he goes. So they 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 created this. Uh, they call his attorney, call Mister Drazen, and that's a. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're getting another search warrant for Cal's house. You know, you don't do that. You don't give advance notice of a search warrant, but, but, but they, they wanted him to know they were coming Yeah. to, to see what his reaction would be. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it didn't amount to anything. He, you know, he, uh, you know, they followed him around, uh, you know, they tracked his GPS uh, positions and then they turned out to be nothing at all. Um, but that didn't stop him from from checking out every place he stopped. You know, he went to Chuck E. Cheese with his kids, and uh, uh, he, he went down by the lake to go uh, jet skiing and that type of thing. And uh, no, he, he never did anything that, that was helpful to the cause. Stay tuned for part two and the exciting conclusion of Reign of Injustice next Sunday night at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Just ahead... Four trials. A last-minute witness shows up who places a man in a pickup truck talking angrily to Michelle Harris at the end of her driveway in the early morning hours of September 11th, this being the last man to see her alive. And still the state police are sticking to their story that Cal is the murderer, while the real suspects are piling up. Four trials to come and a three-and-a-half-year prison sentence waiting for Cal Harris.